Thanks for tuning into the Life in the Front Office podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks to Suja Organic for their support. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Sujo Organic. Really excited to be here with my co-host, Andy Dolich and Pat Gallagher. Uh, really excited to talk to our guest uh, today who is spearheading a global movement in LA 2028. Really excited to discuss kind of the Olympics coming back to the US. Uh, it'll be here before you know it. And Andy, Pat, you guys have known Chris for, for a while, so I'll let you, you uh, what's, what's the appropriate phrase here, Andy? Because we kick it off, tip it off, I mean, what, what's the appropriate phrase with the Olympics? Uh, we globalize it. We're globalizing this because it's, it's global. But I do, um, I, I do have to ask, the soccer world in the Bay Area is kind of transfixed on next week's matchup between Woodside and Midi. Uh, I know that it's been on the front pages of most of the international soccer publications. Can you give us a scouting report on these two high school powerhouses? You know, I, first of all, thanks for having me on this. Um, and I, yeah, I'm a little biased, right? Uh, Woodside being the, the local school and the underdog is my favorite. Um, I think, you know what? I think they have what it takes to get through the championship this year and then on to state. And that's what it looks like. Wow. So number eight seed. All right. And so, Pat, I'll let you get to the really important stuff. Well, first of all, proper introduction, Chris Pepe, who's the chief commercial officer for the Olympics in, Olympics in 2028 in Los Angeles. And I, I was just talking before when, when we were doing the Super Bowl, which is a, like a minor little event compared to what you're doing, we had this, we had this countdown clock on the wall, which you know it, it counted it down to the seconds about when it's gonna happen. And if you're inclined to do that, fine. But I'll tell you, it's frightening because as that clock ticks down every second, you're kind of, if you go get a cup of coffee and you kind of go, oh my God, I just wasted 15 seconds. Anyway, so Chris, congratulations on this. I mean, it's a, it's a mega role. And uh, uh, why, don't, why don't you just say, how did you get involved in this? How did it happen? Yeah, no, thanks. And look, one of the silver linings of COVID is we haven't been in the office so there is no big countdown clock just yet, but I am, I'm dreading going back in, uh, in the next couple of months where those numbers are going to be you know, right in front of me every day. I would uh, jump in with Pat. We had one when we were building FedEx Forum in Memphis. And I do think on the positive side, it really is a great team builder because there's always back and forth and people go, holy mackerel, and you can put pictures on it. It's, it's well worth it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, agreed. We will get there. I know that our friends in Paris and Milan uh, have theirs and are, yeah, they're stressing already. So, um, but to your question, Pat, how did I get into this? I, I, you know, it, it's an odd bit of a story. I'll give you the latter part of it because I had come off a family sabbatical uh, where I had sworn off saying I was done doing anything big uh, or big-ish. Um, 
and uh, found myself right back in. And the way it happened was um, I was doing some consulting work when I got back, not quite sure what I was going to do full time. And I wound up calling an old friend of mine who was running for president of U.S. soccer uh, by the name of Kathy Carter. Kathy and I worked together, uh, the development of MLS in the 90s. And I offered my services. Um, we wound up losing the election um, to, uh, to a gentleman who's actually running again this year by fractions of a percent in a first round vote. Um, but then as we, you know, as we got closer to one another after 30 years of knowing each other, um, and she took the, the job as chief revenue officer of this properties group, the USOPP, US Olympic and Paralympic Properties, and the CEO of LA28, um, she asked me to come in and uh, I actually came in in an advisory capacity three and a half years ago. And um, yeah, here I, here I am after all. I, I really didn't expect it. I wasn't looking for it. Um, and it just happened uh, that, I was, uh, that I was the right fit for what they were looking for for this role. And Chris, was that the first time in Olympic bid history that two cities for the summer games were awarded at one time? Yeah, it was very unconventional. And if you remember, Boston was awarded first, right, in 24, and then things didn't work out. Um, and then when the IOC had a second bite of the apple, our chairperson, Casey Wasserman, had the idea um, to you know, do a dual award, which I have to say, I think it's probably one of the best decisions the IOC has made um, in recent history. Um, and it gave us a 10-year window to get to LA. But, but let me just add, because one of the things that people don't realize oftentimes is that for this USOPP entity, we actually represent all of Team USA and the Olympic Committee, so the National, you know, the National uh, Organizing Committee, as well as the OCOG for LA 28. So we represent all commercial interests across the Olympic and Paralympic landscape in the United States. Wow. So, you know, you, you kind of look back, you know, the manual from, from 1984, you know, the, uh, the 1984, and nobody knew who Peter Ubroth was before the 1984 Olympic. Nobody, anyway, wound up being the commissioner of base. They surely couldn't spell his name. That's Well, that's, that's true. That's true. It was in the end of the alphabet. But in, in this thing, I, I, you know, I've been trying to do, trying to ask some good questions. And I looked at, at a couple of things. One thing really struck me, there's this term called fiscally prudent um, Olympics. And, and um, so, I mean, it's so great that in California, now we have surfing, sport climbing, and skateboarding as Olympic events in 2028, if I'm not mistaken. But Chris, what, tell me, what, how do you define fiscally prudent? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because I think that historically in you know some other countries, um, they have found themselves trying to build infrastructure and venues to support these large events. And then sometimes they're not real sure what to do with all of that new construction once the games have moved on. In, in the US and for LA, we use this term radical reuse. We're, we're essentially, uh, well, not essentially, we are using all existing venues. Um, so for instance, the Athlete Village will be at UCLA. So we could do it today if we had to. We could host all the games. And you just saw the Super Bowl at SoFi Stadium um, that'll be used for opening and closing in a number of other events. 
So fiscally prudent, I think, starts with managing your costs, um, starting with construction uh, relative to putting on the games themselves. So that that's number one. Number two is we are all privately funded. So you know my my target number for sponsorship probably the the worst kept secret in the industry of two and a half billion dollars um, is something that we started working on three years ago, uh, selling in the value proposition across both Team USA and LA 28 for the long term. So it's so important that we're able to, to raise and generate the dollars needed from the private community uh, to fund the games, which is really more about um, some of the temporary um, venues that will have in place and you know, some of the component parts to put on the games overall. And to Andy's point earlier, we kind of somewhat joke that we're putting on three Super Bowls um, a day <laughs> for 17 days. Then we take a break and we do it again for the Paralympic Games. Um, so there's a lot to be done. And, you know, we think about the Bay Area uh, near and dear to all of our hearts and Anne Cribs and the amazing work that she's done over decades to try to bring the Olympics to the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, which is a very, very difficult market in which to have everybody speaking the same language. And you mentioned Casey Wasserman. Um, I always thought about the Olympics like an iceberg. You see the one eighth above the surface, which are the athletes, opening ceremonies, incredible, um, broadcast coverage all over the world, but it's that seven eighths underneath the water that that make an Olympics. Can you can you talk about some of yeah. that, the level of complexity? You know, here's Jake and Pat and Andy. Yeah, so they worked for some teams, they built some stuff. You're literally talking about the face <laughs> of the globe, of which clearly everybody gets along every day, right? <laughs> yeah. we're in, you know, we're in a critical mm -hmm. state now. We've come off the Olympics in Beijing. But can you describe as best you can the complexity of this to actually put on an event, you know, six a series of events, three Super Bowls a day, six years from now? Yeah, no, I, I there are there are a few buckets that I'd respond to on that. Um, the first is I started this three and a half years ago. We were, I don't know, maybe 20 people. We're only about 100 people today, but we'll be between four and 5,000 employees collectively by the time the games kick off, plus another you know, 70,000 some odd volunteers. So you know, you're talking about you know, 75, 80, 90,000 people uh, involved to pull this off, number one. Number two is there's, there are these interesting insights that you start to learn um, about the athletes and the coaches and the administrators from all these countries around the world that are gonna be coming in. And you know, there was an interesting one, we were talking about some of the medical needs that we have. And someone said, well, you know, when some of the athletes come from some of these countries, this is the first time they're gonna have a real dental checkup. Um, or this is the first time that they're gonna have uh, some, you know, something that they've had um, with their body checked out for the, you know, in, in a proper way. So there's all of these things that converge, not just the games themselves, but also the folks that are coming into the country during that period of time. Um, and then the other thing I'll say is that, you know, I've done a lot of work in World Cups in years past and was always fascinated by World Cup where you're essentially going 
across the country or whatever country it is or countries that it will be in, you're working across multiple countries, but then it's one match every three days. The interesting thing about this and one of the massive complexities is the simultaneous nature of events that happen in a very short period of time um, and in a relatively spread out area, even though it's in quote unquote one city, uh, but it's really spread out uh, throughout Southern California for, for all intents and purposes for these games. So there are a lot of different pieces that come together to make this happen. Uh, we are officially, by the way, on the clock. Um, there's about a seven year, um, call it almost like a checklist, right? Um, and I'm sure the Super Bowl had something similar, Pat, where you know you have from past games, you have these things that you've got to mark through along the way. And if you're not tracking, someone's going to slap you on the wrist and make sure that you're, you know, you're taking care of business along the way. Uh, but we are now finally in that window. Well, to, to just follow up on the point that, that Pat and Jake made about the, the different sports, I just, I'm not a surfer and I'm not a winter sports guy, but I can't wait for some surfer to do a 1440. Is that, is that going to happen? In it? Can you tell us, is that possible? Can somebody do a 1440? get back on their board you know as 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 much as i'm a commercial guy and deal with numbers those are not the numbers that i deal with okay all right yeah i'll i'll leave it chris quick one for you uh for those who are listening may or may not know that la actually hosted the special olympics world games in 2015 uh one of our friends bill schumar helped kind of run that is there anything that you take from having a, a large event like that uh you know, just from learnings and, you know, using certain facilities around the LA area and so on? Well, you know, Special Olympics, Oscars, any big event, I mean, you think about um, LA and how many big events it hosts on an annual basis. Uh, and then you look back over the course of the 10 years. So I think one thing for certain is that there's expertise in the area. People, we have people in Southern California that know how to do events, hard stop, right? We have venues that know how to host big events. We have, <laughs> despite what some people may think, we have an infrastructure uh, that supports the hosting for big events. So I would say it's less about Special Olympics specifically, but more about the, you know, the event world that resides within the LA universe. Uh, it's a constant, right? I mean, they're hosting people from around the world every day of every year. Uh, and know how to do it and do it well. So Chris, the, the chances are pretty good that, um, that you know, that the ways that you're gonna consume the Olympics in 2028 are obviously gonna be far different. I mean, you know, aside from the people who are lucky enough to be able to, you know, go, go to the events in first, first hand, but tell me how you think about the, the forms of distribution that are out there that prop, some of them may not even have been invented yet. How do you sort of, you know, how do you sort of keep the option open to um, to distribute it in, in ways that are is best for people who are going to be interested in trying to consume it? Yeah. So, so first of all, like NBC has a long term investment in this, right? So, uh, the rights through twenty thirty two and. Um, they own the right, no matter how it's being consumed, 
to ensure distribution uh, is equitable and engaging for consumers. So we know that we have a partner for a long term uh, that is in the forefront of that. I think actually one of the more interesting elements of this in this position is that I'm constantly talking to companies about the future. I don't have a crystal ball and neither do they. One of the things that you find is, and probably one of the reasons some, it's mostly the bigger blue chip companies that do invest uh, at least this early on as sponsors uh, is because they have plans, strategies, um, and pathways to the future, uh, whether it's in R&D or innovation centers or whatever it might be. So we're all kind of playing in the future, not just as it relates to viewership and broadcast. Um, but there are things guaranteed to be developed over the course of the next six and a half years that we just don't, don't have line of sight on. I, I was playing with my Oculus last evening, actually. I was playing golf and you know, just reminded how just in you know, VR and AR alone, there's going to be this whole leap to a next generation that we don't know. I mean, Andy, maybe we're going to have fans uh, deciding you know, <laughs> an event in the Olympic wow, Games. what a crazy <laughs> idea. What a crazy <laughs> idea. And Chris, you have not shared yet with uh, the country the lunar studio that will be built in 2028 um, by some known <laughs> rocketeers to basically weigh in on weightlessness during the Olympics, which is going to be mind-boggling. Uh, so I know when you're ready to announce that, you will. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. Stranger things have happened. My I will say this. One of my first, actually, the first negotiation that we had with our very first founding partner, Delta uh, Airlines, was around what constitutes a flying car versus an airplane. Um, because we had to make sure as we were talking through the category uh, that we were protecting <laughs> their rights for anything that was transporting people above the ground that wasn't a helicopter um, or private jet. Um, so it was a really interesting discussion. And this was, this is already three years ago. Chris, as you think about the, the platform you're developing for these sponsors, you know, having your experience at Visa, knowing what you're looking for and how you're trying to, you know, ultimately reach the global audience. One would say, well, the Olympics is just like the Super Bowl. You've got, you know, again, a couple big events in a small frame of time, right? But you're, you're doing partnerships over six, seven, eight years where they're coming on board. What are you doing in, you know, say year six through two in the lead up, right? Up to the Olympic games. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we get questioned on quite a bit is you have this amazing 17 day period of the games and how do you extend that? time period of value before and after the games. And a lot of it is around the athletes, right? And what people don't realize is that, you know, if you're a premier athlete training for the Olympic games, this is not a, this isn't a 17 day journey. This is a, you know, a lifetime journey, uh, at least a multiple year journey. So we spend a lot of time with our brands talking about activations around athletes, around qualifying, around their other events, uh, and then leaning into uh, the value of the IP of the brand itself. A lot of LA 28 and really the Olympic and Paralympic movement in general is around purpose. How are we inf influencing purposeful uh, initiatives 
in LA, in the United States that are meaningful to brands, meaningful to the movement, meaningful to athletes. And one thing that we did early on, I get this question all the time, like, what's the legacy gonna be after 2028? Well, we're gonna start with making sure that we're leaving a legacy today as opposed to waiting to leave a legacy. And thus this $160 million investment into youth sports in LA, that was part of the commitment of, uh, from the bid that we would start to leave a legacy before, long before the games kicked off. Um, so we're not looking to <laughs> wait until the end of the games to say, well, that was the legacy. Uh, we're looking to build it now and bringing our partners along the way for, uh, on that adventure. And that's, that's so wonderful because when you link back to Peter Ubroth and that great team that he put together in 84 and how that is still giving to the community today, where Absolutely. very few cities or countries in the, around the world can even come close to that. And you now have this incredible opportunity to make it bigger and better because you're already there six years before the event. That's pretty spectacular. Yeah, and 84 set a high bar, right, for sure. I mean, they really changed the movement in so many different ways. But you're right. I don't know that a lot of people know this, but the 84 Foundation still is giving back yeah. to the community. So one quick question, uh, back to these categories that you talked about in your negotiations with Delta, you know, what's a flying car, what's an airplane? So if Pat and I and Jake are at Interstate 5 near Euclid uh, crossing 605, what should, what should we expect if we're in the, the flying cars? Will we, will we have bumper to bumper in flying cars or can you tell us about that or not? <laughs> That's highly confidential. Okay. You know, look, we, right. we're working very closely with the Department of Transportation to ensure that this it doesn't okay. become an issue. Just wanted to know. <laughs> so, Chris, when you're going through, and I became familiar um, um, with this term when when I was involved in this, you know, in the 50th Super Bowl, and it it was a term called Black Swan event, which, um, and I said, well, what's a Black Swan event? It's it's sort of something that happens that you cannot anticipate what would happen. And it's sort of like the, you know, people, I mean, I guess if you were a historian, you could anticipate that a, that a pandemic would happen, but, um, and, and hopefully we're back to whatever, whatever the new normal is going to be, we're going to be back to that at some point, but um, you know, you, you have to, you, as you're, if you're getting people to invest in this event, you have to think about um, how do you put the language in? You just leave that to the lawyers. <laughs> Or, or, or what do you say about it? Yeah, I have the advantage and disadvantage of actually being an attorney, right, for my previous life. So um, very deep into these conversations and, you know, not to get too technical here, right, but the force majeure clause is certainly one that has gained a lot of additional interest along the way. Um, and we try envision to envision every possible scenario, but for the ones that you can't, you try to draft language that protects both sides. Because look, one of the things about the Olympic Games is, you know, you're, you don't have a next season, right? So you're trying to make sure that you're providing value along the way and at the seminal moment of the big event. So it's critical that as we discuss the funding of the event ahead of time, that we're able to find language that delivers value regardless of the outcome. Um, I think... You know, Tokyo and Beijing are pretty interesting from a force majeure perspective because one was postponed and happened and the other one wasn't postponed 
but had a lot of additional um, protections in place to ensure that the games went on. So I, I think there's a pretty decent track record of games actually happening, um, but whether there's going to be certain modifications needed or whatnot, uh, that's the type of language that you're trying to negotiate around. Yeah, I hadn't heard that term before, but that's a new one to me. Black, no, black swan. Yeah, you know, in which you kind of go, well, okay, what is that? It didn't sound like anything good. No. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and I, I have nothing against, you know, I, I'm jealous sometimes of lawyers, but I'm not sure who dreamed that up, but I, I, I do remember it. And, you know, it's, it's so fascinating to think about the amount of time. I mean, some of the people that are going to compete in this Olympics, you know, maybe there's a few of them are just learning to walk right now. Or maybe there's some of them that are, you know, they're in elementary school and they're, you know, they're, they're doing things. And as you say, you know, there's going to be things along the way that inspire them to become, uh, at, nobody wakes up and says, I'm a, I'm a world-class athlete, but there's got to be something along the way that inspires these people to, um, to aspire to, to compete in them. But, you know, you're now, what, six years away. Um, there's some of them that are, you know, I'm not going to say they're learning how to walk, but, um, well, that's true. I was no, going to say, when did, when did you learn how to walk, Pat? Because if you do the math, like, you know, if I, I tell you, if I had it to do over again, I would have said, I would have said, I'm going to wait until I'm about five, because if you can have somebody carry you around, think about this. Well, carry he's going the other way. Years. He's going I, I, the other seriously. way and that people will be carrying him around. Well, you know, it, it, I would have done that and stuff. <laughs> Chris, there's, so I don't know how you do this, but, um, but it's so fascinating because as the lead up to this, and you're going to have some, you know, some, a lot of things that are going to influence people to inspire athletes, uh, budding athletes to, to yeah. get into sports is one of the things that you're, you know, it's not a task, but it's one of the opportunities that you have. On the front side and the back side, Pat, right? I mean, Miracle on Ice. I mean, what did it do for hockey? So you're absolutely right. It, it, but it is on both sides of the games themselves. Um, and, and interestingly, the other component to that is our target fan is probably in third grade right now, right? So finding the fan base that is going to be engaged in six and a half years, you're very you know, your very first question and how they're going to engage with it is for us equally as important um, so that we have an engaged audience that's interested in the movement uh, and the games here in LA. So it's, it's all of this is playing into the future, right? Skate to where the, where, to so where the puck is what, going. One question to you without a crystal ball, but knowing you as a friend, when uh, the Olympic flame is turned off in 28 in LA, what what in your mind do you want to have accomplished and what will bring a smile to your face and all the hundreds and thousands of people that you'll be working with between now and then? Yeah. First that I'm still standing, uh, cause it will have been for me personally, it will have been a 10 year journey, which is very hard to imagine. Um, so that, that that's number one personally. Um, you know, professionally, you know, Casey, Casey says this to us all the time. He's like, it's going to be a great games, but if we only deliver a great games, we miss the moment, right? We have an opportunity to help shape a world that we envision and that we want to be a part of uh, with our partners, our athletes, and our colleagues around the world. So we have to make some seminal changes, not just in sport and entertainment, but I think in society and culture 
And that's the real opportunity. Um, and we don't lose sight of that. We have to, obviously we've got to put on all the competitions and the events, but what's going to happen in and around those competitions and events that I think is going to be the story, the real story of how LA helped to shape a better future. I've always thought that the Olympics was one of the last, along with sports venues, the last town squares left <laughs> in our society around the world, where in most cases, even with our differences, everybody can get along, see unbelievable performances and move on to whatever petty jealousies they have to a better place. Yeah, I think that's still true. I think that's still true. Um, so, and we have a magical moment in LA. I mean, it's one of those cities that is so aspirational for so many people around the world to begin with, is so much on the bleeding edge um, of culture and society uh, and sport and entertainment, um, and is already a natural melting pot, pot for folks around the world. Um, so it has all of the natural ingredients. And we, we have to hope we have the right chefs in the kitchen to be able to pull that, you know, turn that into a, an unbelievable meal. So Jake, we have an opportunity to have Chris as a guest, if my math is right, 72 more times if he's with us once a month. <laughs> How about that? Should we do at, that? At this rate, we could certainly <laughs> make something like that happen. Uh, Eunice, I need, I need help on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to approve. Okay, Eunice. Yeah, I knew you'd jump all over. <laughs> Chris, I got three quick rapid fire questions for you to wrap up the episode because we've got to have at least a little bit of fun. Um, if you, you know, knowing that the games, obviously in LA, uh, Hollywood, if there's a movie that is made about LA 2028 and you're starring in it, who's playing your role? And then what's the movie called? Oh my gosh. Um, who's playing me let's see boy this is a tough one someone i was in a pitch meeting recently and some of my colleagues are gonna laugh and the cmo of this company said has anyone ever told you you look like tom cruise and i asked her to say that much louder um so that everyone <laughs> could hear it <laughs> and then i said no um boy um yeah maybe i'd go with andy garcia to play me a little different. That's a good uh, cultural. Yeah. Um, and the name of the film would be, hmm, let's see, probably something like um, The Future You Envisioned is the Future You See. Very right. good. All right, one, one sport, if you could compete, what would it be? Uh, that's, I'm, I'm a soccer guy. So summer games, um, always a dream. But the bigger question for me is, I'm a dual citizen. Would I play for Italy or for the U.S.? Um, oh. That's a tougher one, but probably the U.S. I, I would, I would imagine if it's in, if it's at least on the home grounds of the country, right? You got to play for U.S. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, last one. If you could give advice to anybody in terms of you know, look, the Olympics come around once, once in a blue moon per se, right. In terms of getting involved uh, from a career perspective. But if you said, Hey, in the next six years, if you wanted to be involved in the Olympic movement, how would you go about it? Uh, and, and what experience would you need in order to be qualified to, to be involved? Yeah. 
Um, look, I think there are two tremendous opportunities in 26 and 28 um, for folks that want to break into the industry in the U.S. Uh, with the World Cup and with the Olympic Games and Paralympic Games. Um, so I think persistence is key. Um, you know, finding your way in, persistence is key. And be creative in your approach. You know, I think you've got guys on this call that have received countless resumes because they worked for the big brands in their particular market. Um, but there are so many, so many other avenues. This industry has grown and developed so much that, you know, from the time that Pat, Andy, myself have been in here, that there are so many more opportunities. Now there's a lot more competition as well. So be creative, do your homework to understand the industry. Even as an outsider, try to get an insider's perspective so you get a better view of it. And then persistence. I'll tell you, I don't, I don't tell people this very often, but I applied for the 94 World Cup um, and I have the rejection letter from Alan Rothenberg. Alan Rothenberg was on the board of Major League Soccer and that's where I got my start. Um, and that was two years later because I didn't really give up. And, you know, I got a little lucky along the way. Um, but just because I got a no, I get no's every day, by the way, I'm in sales, right? Uh, you just have to keep pushing forward and find, you know, find the smart way in. Well, we're glad that you said yes to join us because you've educated us and you've educated all of our listeners. And we really appreciate your time um, and our friendship over this time too. Thank you. Well, you guys are legends, not only professionally, but personally, because you're, you are all known as tremendous human beings uh, and probably more so than what you've done uh, in the industry. And I really admire that. And that's honestly, that's one of the reasons that I keep doing this. I think you can do this and be a good person um, and make good friends along the way. So thanks for having me. Well, thanks and go Woodside. That's all I can say. Go Woodside. We're cheering you on, Chris. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And remember, if you like this episode or you like the Life in the Front Office podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Really appreciate you tuning in and stay tuned for the next one.